Namo-tasa-bhakavato-arahato-sammā-sambuddhāsā Continuing with the teachings from the uh, uh, Ajahn Sumedho Anthology, Volume 3. And this is uh, the talks from the book uh, called The Way It Is. And this uh, is Chapter 11, Accepting the Way Things Are. And, and all of these talks were, uh, most, of them, most of these talks were given in 1988 during the winter retreat here at Amravati. Accepting the Way Things Are. How many of you have been practicing today trying to become something? I've got to do this, or become that, or get rid of something, or got to do something. That compulsiveness takes over, even in our practice of Dhamma. Oh, I think that a question could apply today. <laughs> How many of us have been uh, uh, trying to become something, get rid of something, during the course of the, uh, of the, uh, the day? Uh, these um, habits uh, of uh, working with the mind in these, um, uh, see, these patterns of being driven by bhavatana, the desire to become or to be, we bhavatana, the desire to get rid of or to to wipe out, to not be. These are a, a persistent and um, very, see, the. <coughs> uh, hard to identify qualities in the meditation and um, that uh, uh, is one of those those aspects of, of the practice that is a, say requires continual attention to see how much there's a um, trying to get something trying to be something trying to get rid of something and that uh, the more that the quality of of self and conceit can be identified in that and recognized uh, then it can be let go of and so that uh, you can't just uh, wish those kind of habits away. But uh, what we can do is, is they, we can recognize them. And so that the more they're recognized, then the, the driving force, the impetus for Dhamma practice, then it uh, becomes more naturally and, and easily the qualities of mindfulness and wisdom rather than me trying to become something or me trying to get rid of something. This is the way it is, quote-unquote, isn't a fatalistic attitude of not caring or being indifferent, but a real openness to the way things have to be at this moment. For example, right now, at this moment, this is the way it is. And it can't be any other way at this moment. It's so obvious, isn't it? Right now, no matter whether you are feeling high or low or indifferent, happy or depressed, Enlightened or totally deluded, half enlightened, half deluded, three quarters deluded, one quarter enlightened, hopeful or despairing, this is the way it is. And it can't be any other way at this moment. This doesn't mean that we can't try to make things better, but we do so from understanding and wisdom rather than from an ignorant desire. So, just as I was saying, that uh, that uh, quality of this is the way it is, uh, is an uh, openness of heart. It's the, say, the radical acceptance of this moment in, in all its facets, whatever we're experiencing, uh, comfortable, uncomfortable, or somewhere in between, or as he says, um, uh, uh, half enlightened, half deluded, three quarters deluded, quarter enlightened, <laughs> or 99% uh, deluded, 1% enlightened, or, or whatever it might be. Here it is, it, in this moment, it's exactly this way. And just a, a few minutes before um, this, uh, the reading today, Ajahn Soko called me and, and uh, said, uh, asking something about Lumpur's medical appointments, and, uh, and he said, how are you, Ajahn? And I said, I'm exactly like this. And he said, oh, you too. <laughs> so it was a very, very dhammic exchange between the two of us. <laughs> But that's often how uh, I reply when people say, how are you? And, well, I'm like this. You know? And that's, uh, uh, I feel, a very accurate um, 
uh, and a truthful re- reply. But uh, it, it is a, an, an ongoing dynamic. Um, there's a, a way of, yes, the, the, the present moment is exactly like this. Uh, there's an open-hearted uh, attunement, uh, a receptivity to how it is at this moment. But part of the way it is, is the capacity of the heart to respond. And the more there is a genuine quality of, of metta, that radical acceptance of things, then that frees up the qualities of mindfulness and wisdom to, to operate. And then part of that mindfulness and wisdom is a recognition of this is a direction that looks beneficial, this looks wholesome, this looks like it's going to lead towards peace and, and liberation. This direction looks like it's going to lead towards more confusion and, and difficulty and struggle. So part of that, that acceptance is, um, is that say, uh, attunement and that activation of that quality of, uh, of wisdom, uh, of, say, wise understanding. As he says, uh, we do so from understanding and wisdom. So that understanding is, this looks like a good way forward, this looks like a, a way that's going to lead to difficulty and, and dukkha. So then that, um, uh, that openness then informs choice and, and, our, uh, and our ability to act and our, our actions, our choices are also part of the way things are. I say this over and over again but <laughs> I, think, I feel it bears repeating that uh, our choices are not an intrusion upon the way things are or a distortion of the way things are but they're part of the way things are. Our ability to act and decide to, uh, to, give, to give direction to our, our lives, our, our actions, our speech, uh, that's also part of the way things are. So it's a, um, uh, this, uh, say, um, a principle that Lumpur is, is talking a lot about in this, uh, in this collection of teachings. This is the way it is. It's not a fatalistic attitude of not caring or being indifferent, but rather it's that radical openness, that radical acceptance of this moment, exactly uh, uh, this way. How does your body feel? Just notice that the body is this way. It's heavy, it's earthbound, it's coarse. It gets hungry, it feels heat and cold, it gets sick. Sometimes it feels very nice, sometimes it feels horrible. This is the way it is. Human bodies are like this. So this tendency to want them to be otherwise falls away. The world is this way. Things happen. It snows and the sun comes out. People come and go. People have misunderstandings. People's feelings get hurt. People grow lazy or inspired, depressed and disillusioned. People gossip and disappoint each other. There's adultery, theft, drunkenness and drug addiction. And there are wars. And there always have been. So, uh, um, the, I think uh, up to that last sentence, all, the, all of that applies to life at Amravati. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, it snows and the sun comes out. Uh, yes, indeed. People come and go. Yes, indeed. People have misunderstandings. People's feelings get hurt. Yes, that's the, the way it is. People grow lazy or inspired, depressed and disillusioned. People gossip and disappoint each other. So that's community life. That's the, the human world. Uh, sometimes we inspire each other. Sometimes we irritate each other. Uh, sometimes we speak very, uh, very carefully and uh, very uh, respectfully, and um, with, uh, with you know, honesty and with our, our words crafted towards uh, encouragement and uh, and uh, say a quality of concord. Sometimes our, our words are divisive; they're they're fill, filled with gossip and uh, and criticism, or they're filled with. Uh, uh, ideas and opinions that generate anxiety and, and, um, and division, confusion. That's uh, the, the way that uh, that we are. Not praising uh, that or saying you know we just are the, um, uh, not sensitive to the wholesome and the unwholesome, but rather recognizing yeah that's the field of experience. You know sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's it's uh, it's rainy. Uh, that's. Uh, the range of, uh, of experiences today was very spring-like. There's uh, even a, a daffodil near, uh, just about to open up <laughs> outside my my kuti. Uh, there's a, a few daisies have opened up. There's uh, prim, uh, primroses here and there. So snowdrops are out, so that the signs of spring are there. But then also you know, the the weather can easily change, and shh, there's a an icy freeze, and everything. 
and gets uh, gets chilled once again. So that uh, this quality of being open to the way it is, uh, uh, it's a a recognition that uh, we're not tying our happiness to to the conditions of pleasantness or unpleasantness, or to to things being freezing and wintry, or or, or sunny and spring-like, um, or that the people around us are all beautifully behaved or, or uh, badly behaved, whether they're inspiring or uninspiring. But that uh, the the point is that radical acceptance of um, uh, whether it should be or shouldn't be this way. Right now, it's like this, and then that. That openness is what then enables us to recognize, well, that's really an unwholesome or an unskillful way to speak. That's not very helpful. Or that's really beautiful. That's really encouraging and helpful. That uh, openness helps the mind to uh, acknowledge those different qualities free of of confusion, free of, of biases. Here in a community like Amaravati, we can see the way things are. Now it's the weekend. So this is, uh, <laughs> those of you who can remember what it was like on a weekend when people used to come and visit. So that, uh, <clears throat> those of you who are new to Amravati might not have ever even experienced a, a busy weekend. But uh, those of us who have lived here for, uh, for some time will be very aware of what a Saturday and a Sunday could be like uh, in the Sala in particular. So now it's the weekend when more people come to offer alms food and it's more crowded and noisy. There are people pounding vegetables and chopping things, with everything going on all over the place. Sometimes there are children running up and down screaming. You can observe, this is the way it is. Rather than think, these people are impinging on my silence. I don't want it to be like that. I want it to be otherwise. That might be the reaction, if you like, the quiet orderliness of the meal when there's none of that activity, and there are no loud noises or harsh sounds. But life is like this. This is the way life is. This is human existence. So in our minds, we embrace the whole of it. And this is the way it is, quote unquote, allows us to accept the changes and movements from the silent to the noisy, from the, the controlled and ordered to the confused and muddled. That used to be the. Uh, I'm not sure where we were having the, uh, the sittings. I think uh, that winter retreat of, of 1988, I think we were using the sala as our meditation hall. So um, uh, that uh, uh, using that as a, as a meditation space during the morning on the weekend would have been particularly um, a, uh, active, an active opportunity to contemplate noise and the clattering of pots and pans and people chatting away in the in the kitchen. If there was uh, all of us gathered together in the main hall of the sala uh, practicing meditation. But uh, that, that, that is, uh, uh, I think, a very um, important and profound insight and that uh, you know, Lumpur Chah himself spoke of this quite a, a number of times. Many of his Dhamma talks, he referred to uh, an insight he had when he was a young Tudong monk and he was um, sitting off in the forest and, and the, um, uh, the local village, uh, as it was mentioning a, a, a couple of readings ago, that the... Um, uh, the PA systems are very popular in rural Thailand, and, and broadcasting the the, uh, the the songs and the music through the uh, through the the local district. So the people in the village are having a, a, a fair, a, uh, uh, then they have the, some music going all night. And so Lumpur Chao was sitting in the forest and, and getting uh, sort of grumpy and irritated by the noise coming from the the rowdy um, carousing in the in the village. And then he realized that the, the noise was just being noisy. <laughs> it was just do, doing what noise does. And it was, uh, if there was a problem, the problem was only coming from his mind. It wasn't coming from the sound itself. The, the sound is just the sound. You know, you think, he said, he said, you think that the sound is annoying you, but it's not. It, it's you that's going out to annoy the sound. And that was, a, that was a profound insight for him, and, and so it came up in many, many of his Dhamma teachings. And it's, it's very true that uh, uh, we can be in a, a situation like, like this, say, um, at Amravati, and a lot of noise going on uh, around us, or sitting in the, the sala before the, the mealtime on a Sunday would be kind of crowded with people chattering away, or after the mealtime, even more, people are sitting down all over the floor with their, their, their food and chatting with the family, and um, 
uh, I'd often have to say to people, could you sit a bit closer or can you speak up? <laughs> yeah, there's such a, a wall of noise. Um, but uh, the, the mind itself is silent, and so that you can tune into that inner silence even as the ears are, are rattling with, with all, all of the noise, and that even uh, in, in the presence of, uh, of a lot of noise and color and movement and activity, that, uh, that quality of the mind's stillness and spaciousness, its own, its own silence, doesn't have to be interrupted or, or occluded, doesn't have to be... Um, screened or obstructed by the presence of the loud and the noisy and the active. And um, uh, that is a, a, very, uh, a very important skill, a very, uh, a very useful insight and a very important skill to develop. And uh, uh, very, very handy for particularly the times when you're, when you're not on retreat or you're out and about in the world and um, to, to be able to, say, uh, be open to the, to the noise and activity, busyness around one, but to not to be swept up in it, not to be complaining about it or oppressed by it or or wanting to get away from it, but rather sort of uh, realizing that you know that which knows the noise isn't noisy, <laughs> that which knows all the the movement and activity is not moving, that which is uh, sort of uh, aware of the crowdedness is is spacious. It, it there it's not. It's not cramped or crowded. The awareness of the of the mind of the heart accommodates all the sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and and is not intrinsically obstructed by that. I remember um, many many years ago, I was staying up at um, a Tibetan center up in up in the north, and they had uh, um, several pujas, pujas you know, th- three or four times a day. Um, I think it was at Sami Ling uh, and um, I was living up at Harnam, this was in the mid-80s before I came to Amravati, and I, I was invited to go and visit a few different Buddhist centers around the area, and they had uh, pujas three or four times a day, and I would go along to all of those, and they have a lot of got drums and trumpets and and uh, this very deep, uh, sonorous chanting that, that they do. And that was something that I noticed during that uh, uh, that time, those few days I was there at Samye Ling, and being in the pujas, it's like, oh my goodness, it's really noisy, but actually, it's quiet. <laughs> the mind that is knowing the noise is really quiet. So uh, the, uh, that uh, inside of Lumpur Chars, that really sort of came home to me, I, th- I think, for the first time at that point, where it's like, oh my goodness, the, there is a lot of noise. It's really loud, and, and, um, uh, and the uh, uh, have different musical instruments, cymbals and drums and uh, trumpets and whatnot and the human voices, but yet at the same time there's a, an inner silence and that the, the, the sound of the chanting of the puja didn't obstruct the, the silence. And uh, that, that, So that's a, a very helpful quality um, that, w- that we can tune into. Uh, outside of pujas, you know, when you're on a, on a crowded tra- uh, underground train in London or if you're you know, in the in the, the midst of a, of a busy, uh, uh, noisy uh, Sunday midday at, uh, at Amravati, that, that's a good exercise to carry out, to see if you can notice that inner silence in the presence of all the noise or the inner stillness while there's a lot of activity and movement ar- around one. So any thoughts, questions, reflections? Okay, I'll carry on. One can be a very selfish Buddhist, wanting life to be very quiet and to be able to practice, quote-unquote, with plenty of time for sitting, plenty of time for studying the Dhamma and thinking. I don't want to have to receive guests and talk to people about silly things. I don't want to blah, blah, blah. You can be a very, very selfish person as a Buddhist monk. You can want the world to align itself with your dreams and ideals, and when it doesn't, you don't want it anymore. But rather than make things the way that you want them, the Buddha's way is to notice the way things are. And it's a great relief when you accept the way it is, even if it's not very nice, because the only real misery is not wanting it to be like that. So that uh, that's a, a, um, uh, a common... <laughs> uh, Aspiration, or uh, that that uh, crops up for a, a number of people that uh, you know, certainly I've met over the years, uh, trying to 
have a, a, a perfect living environment as a Buddhist monastic and to be fully in control of the, the people who come to visit or what happens in the routine or the administration of the place. And uh, it's, uh, it, it's, not an, it's not absolutely always the case, but um, it seems over and over again that the more determined someone is to establish a place exactly as they want, the more that the universe conspires to <laughs> make it difficult for them. That they'll, uh, they'll, they'll try and set things up in a way that fits what they, uh, what they want and, and is absolutely in accord with their preferences. But then they'll get a, a, a leg injury so that they, they, they can't sit on the floor or they can't climb a hill or they've, they've built the perfect kuti on a hilltop and then they can't, <laughs> they can't, uh, they can't climb the hill because their, their knees are shot. Or that um, they'll say, I don't want to have anything to do with the administration, that's entirely up to the committee, I don't want to be bothered with, with uh, committee meetings or finances or anything of that nature. And then, okay, that's a good aspiration. But then you find that the um, committee members start arguing with each other and get into great uh, conflict and difficulty. And uh, I mean, I, I could elaborate on <laughs> many possible details, but uh, it, it tends to be that way. The more that you're determined to control things and fix things in a certain way, then necessarily you're out of tune with the way things are. And so I wouldn't say that the universe isn't conspiring <laughs> to make things difficult for you. It's just your determination to, to have things in a, in a certain way is causing you to... to uh, say con conflict and collide with the the, the people around you i remember many years ago uh, in the early days of amravati we had um different buddhist groups would would uh, hire out the um uh, the uh, the retreat center we only had a, a, a two or three retreats in a year and so we'd lend it a different groups could hold retreats uh, at amravati and one particular group they had a very very strict uh, meditation regime and so that had a very tightly controlled um, uh, environment within within the meditation hall within the living spaces and uh, and it seemed uh, that that uh, it was uh, we, we didn't set anything up to make life difficult for them or didn't try to make things problematic but uh, it was kind of one problem after another and various people with psychological problems also happened to show up at that time and headed straight for the retreat center that was just sort of excited, uh, you know, walking through the meditation hall. That people we didn't even know very well. So it was, uh, uh, it, it was um, a strange circumstance. But uh, and then we weren't trying to make it difficult. We were not trying to be slack in controlling the environment. We were trying to respect their wishes. But uh, it was, it, it was the, the case that uh, more and more things sort of came along that. <laughs> would disturb the, the, the kind of hermetically sealed, uh, the, the tightly controlled environment. And um, that seems to be the, the, the way things go. The more that you are determined to have it in a particular way, that is planting the causes for dukkha. You're setting things up for, uh, for dissatisfaction. Uh, and that if you are... I uh, say, okay, this is how I'd like it to be. This is my, <laughs> this is my ideal. But let's see how things are. Let's see what really needs one's attention. So that if you realise, well, I'd like to not have to go to committee meetings and not be involved with finances, but the people need some input or need some direction, and so that my my advice or my input is going to be uh, useful here to a certain degree. Or that, oh yes, I'd really like to be able to have um uh, so these days when we have no visitors but that we we need to be able to fit in with people's work schedules and their family life and so that yes it's an ideal to not have nobody can visit on a thursday or a, or a monday or a whatever but uh, for some people that's the only day they can come so that if there's an adaptability a uh, flexibility then you can uh, say respect your ideals and uh, have that as a guiding principle, but you're not create, but you're not turning that into a cause of conflict and dukkha for yourself. So that it's uh, and one of my one of my like Lumpur is using the the phrase "this is the way it is" as a as a theme. One of my similar uh, phrases is uh, "adaptability is the key to happiness." And uh, that's so coming from uh, from many years of living in community life, living in monasteries. That uh, if you don't want to adapt, <laughs> if you're determined to have things you know my way, uh, the, the how it should be, then um, 
that is the the key to unhappiness. I would say that uh, you're you're setting things up. There's a, a good intention, a skillful intention, but in that rigidity or that sense of no, I've got to have this. I've got to have this kind of kuti. I've got to have this kind of walking path. I've got to have this set up with the visitors and the support system and the you know the lay the lay donors and it's got to be it's got to be this way and I, I won't tolerate anything else right there there's <laughs> dukkha absolutely you know, absolutely guaranteed either immediately or down the line because of that that fixity that rigidity and so uh, that um quality of adaptability is is really crucial in uh, in the whole process of of liberation i would say Whether things are going well or not so well, if we don't accept the way things are, the mind tends to create some form of misery. So if you're attached to things going nicely, you'll start worrying if they go less well, even when they're actually still going well. I've noticed that with little th- I've noticed that with little things, such as when it's a sunny day and one jumps for joy, and then the next thought will be, oh, but in England the sun can disappear in the next moment. As soon as I've grasped one perception and I'm jumping for joy at the sunshine, the unpleasant thought arises that it may not last. Whatever you're attached to will bring on its opposite. This is what I was saying. <laughs> Again, it's, it's not the universe sort of the, the gods of karma plotting to make life miserable for you. It's just the, 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 uh, the way nature is, uh, the way nature works. That, that's how it functions. It, um, yeah, whatever you're attached to will bring on its opposite. And when things aren't going very well, the mind tends to think, I want them to go better than this. So, suffering arises whenever there is the grasping of desire. The sensory world is pleasurable and painful. It's beautiful and ugly. It's neutral. There are all gradations, all possibilities in it. This is just what sensory experience is about. But when ignorance and the self-view are operating, I only want pleasure and I don't want pain. I want only beauty and I don't want ugliness. Please, God, make me healthy. Give me a good complexion, physical attractiveness, and let me stay young for a long time. Get lots of money, wealth and power, no sickness, no cancer, lots of beautiful things around me. Surround me with beauty and the pleasures of the senses at their best, please. Then the fear will come that maybe I'll get the worst. I could get leprosy, AIDS, Parkinson's disease or cancer, and I might be rejected and despised and humiliated. Left alone, out in the cold, hungry, sick and in danger, with wolves howling and the wind blowing. So that uh, that last reference there, the wolves howling and, and the wind blowing, um, that uh, is informed by a, um, a, a nimitta, a visionary um, experience that Lumpur Sumato had back in the, uh, the very early days that he was in England, when he was living at the Hampstead Vihara in, uh, in London. And he, he's uh, often mentioned this in uh, in various talks, and it was a uh, it was something that formed a very a very uh, helpful insight. So that uh, he often say that he was quite attached to to being in a warm, sunny place, and uh, he, he, that's why he gravitated to Thailand rather than Japan for Buddhist training, because he was. Uh, put off by the idea of the freezing uh, zendos in the Buddhist monasteries in Japan, but Thailand's a nice, hot, sunny, tropical country, and um, and so uh, he, uh, and he could see he was quite attached to, to physical comfort. And when he was uh, sitting meditating in Hampstead one time, there was this nimitta. Uh, a nimit- nimitta means a sign, literally, uh, this uh, visionary experience that uh, took shape in his mind. And uh, he could see himself out in this frozen wasteland of the Arctic. And uh, he, he was uh, uh, completely alone, he was naked, it was freezing cold wind, and there was a the sound of wolves on the, on the wind. And so he was, all the things that he most hated and, and was were most off-putting to be, uh, uh, you know, to cold, alone, uh, out in the, the Arctic, and it was that kind of Arctic twilight, like the dim light of, uh, of the uh, sort of Arctic winter. And, uh, and all the signs of, of danger and misery and cold and, and uh, loneliness. And, uh, and he said, so it was all of the, the, the signs of uh, what's miserable and dangerous and painful and, and unwanted, but yet it was, it was completely peaceful. 
There was this extraordinary peace and um, an ease within him, even though there was this, uh, say, this, this terrible, uh, dangerous situation and the, wolf, the sound of the wolves howling on the, on the wind. And uh, so that, uh, at the time, he, uh, he understood that to be uh, related to his experience of being in London, having left the forest in, in Thailand and living close to Lumpur Cha. Then he was there in this, this house in London. There was just uh, four monks living there together. And um, it was a, a quite a, uh, a, a challenging living situation, very different from the forest in Thailand and very different from being close to the, the great master uh, and being able to receive his teachings and his advice and guidance. And so um, uh, the uh, intuitive association that Lumpur Sumato made was that even though the, the living conditions in, in London, that they were... Uh, away from their homeland, they're away from the teacher. Uh, it's a non-Buddhist country. They would go out, go out on arms around every day, and no one would ever put any food in their bowls, apart from uh, a, a local woman who became became the first of the nuns, Sister Rochina. She was a laywoman then. She would uh, she would be out on the on the street in Hampstead, kind of waiting for the monks to come by. <laughs> To, uh, she would uh, offer food once in a while, but it was a, uh, a very challenging and and uh, and also a bleak situation for for Ajahn Sumedho at that time. But yet there was that p- incredible peacefulness and this 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 inner silence and and ease, and so that it was a powerful sign for him that don't uh, there's no need to be deluded or, or uh, say. Um, uh, taken uh, taken in by the the apparent negative circumstances um, that the uh, that even if things are difficult and challenging and, and what, exactly what you don't want or you don't feel at home in you can still be fully at peace there can be great peace great great ease great contentment uh, within that so it was a, a powerful nimitta for him and it was also around this time he started to develop the uh, uh, inner uh, the inner listening the listening to the the inner sound uh, as a, a practice and uh, as a, as an aside he was telling that story at a retreat in california um talking to to people about encouraging them not not to be <laughs> dependent on external circumstances um and that uh, uh I think because um, you know, there, there was a sense that people uh, there could be very, very um, particular about how they wanted their meditation retreat to be or how they wanted their practice to be. And he was using this as an example that uh, the circumstances, you can be sick and, and cold and, or, or alone, uh, alone and things could be really unfortunate. You can you know, have leprosy, AIDS, Parkinson's disease, cancer, you know, all of the unwanted and, and painful uh, perceptions. But yet you, you can be fully at peace, fully at ease within that. And so anyway, he, he was telling that story on this Dhamma talk and, uh, when uh, an interview uh, uh, session came around a few days later, one of the people on the retreat said, uh, Lumpo Sumato, would you like to go to the Arctic? And he said, yes, I would. <laughs> and so that was the, uh, the genesis of the trip to Svalbard that myself, Ajahn Yanarato, um, made with, with Lumpo back in 2003, I think it was. That's nearly 20 years ago now. Um, so that uh, it was on account of that that uh, that Dhamma talk, it, uh, uh, we went there and we meditated out in the Arctic, uh, the, the frozen Arctic wastelands. It was uh, uh, quite uh, quite a, a wonderful experience. So, any questions, thoughts, comments? Anyone want to go to the Arctic? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, listening to Lumpur Sumedho's talk reminds me of just, yeah, how sort of, at least in my mind, our wonderful our tradition is in that, yes, you know, there is that sense of adaptability, but what shall we say? We know what, we know how to adapt because what shall we say? We don't adapt by eating afternoon. 
We don't adapt by handling money. If we didn't have very clear guidelines and clear knowledge that of adapting the rules to <laughs> self-view, which is how it could easily, I mean, I think certainly before I came upon this tradition, I, I can, yeah, I can think of a couple spiritual um, sort of people who talked about adaptability but didn't have those rules. And um, my, my own opinion is, is that, uh, yeah, we do, we, can, we do a bit better than that. So that's that's some, um, and of course, yeah, Lumpur Sumedho, you know, has has both aspects very strongly. Yeah, that was one of the the challenges when they, they first came to England. Was uh, Lumpur was being um, uh, bombarded? It sounded like from various different quarters. Everyone was telling him what the, what he had to do to to adapt to the to the new environment and how they. They, they couldn't sit on the floor to meditate because, you know, hi- hippies sit on the floor, so they should sit on chairs to meditate. To, uh, and to, um, that they, uh, they would have to use money to get around on the underground and, uh, and so on and so forth. And that, uh, in, in, in a way, in the spirit of what you're describing, or as, as I'm hearing it, uh, uh, Lumpur said, well, we'll, uh, we'll respectfully hear what people have got to say and their suggestions and then we'll, we'll try things out and, and what we uh, what we discover as we live here, living in this climate uh, then if there's things we really do need to change then we'll change them if there's things we don't need to change then we won't change them so when they went out on, on arms round first of all they used to go barefoot which is fine in the summertime they, they arrived in July uh, no sorry they arrived in May and um uh, and uh, Lumpur Cha and uh, Lumpur Sumato and Lumpur Kemadamo, they came in May and then uh, Ajahn Viradamo and Ajahn Ananda joined them in July. So it was summertime. So they'd go on arms round through Hampstead and on Hampstead Heath barefoot. Then as it came to sort of November, December, then uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato they would come back from the arms round with, with blue feet. And people at the Vihara, people like, like Sister Rojna, who was a, you know, a laywoman who was very, very dedicated to looking after the, the Sangha, she said, Venerable Sumedha, your feet are blue, this is terrible. You, know, you, you can't possibly go on the arms around barefoot. And, and so then realizing, okay, this is just like in the, in the Vinaya, where you know, modest people spread it about, how can these monks walk around barefoot in the snow? You know, they're getting blue feet, they're going to injure themselves. Surely... Uh, the uh, sandals should be allowable for the for the sangha. So then they started wearing sandals and socks to guard on on Bindabad and such like. And uh, so then, uh, if you, like, all like these jackets, you know, that we have, we, they were an adaptation. Um, but uh, the things that we didn't uh, need to change then, uh, and the t- in order to just um, uh, say be respectful of the tradition and also of the renunciate uh, lifestyle. Then it was it was clear that, uh, that those kind of things like uh, eating just in the morning time or not using money that they didn't need to be uh, they didn't need to be changed and so uh, it's it's generally much easier to well <laughs> in terms of dhamma practice it's easier to change your mind than to change the world but not everyone sees it that way and that to, to find happiness is often rearranging the world to, to make to make ourselves happy is what the, a lot of uh, life in in, uh, in the um, uh, in sort of the ordinary worldly living situations is about you know changing the furniture, changing your job, changing your partner, changing your diet, uh, changing your living your living place, um, and that uh, that's one of the, the I find the, the great blessings of meditation is that you find you know you can change your mind, you can you can change your attitude. So what I was I was saying I have to have this or I can't stand that. Who says that's true? Why don't I just see it differently? Oh, and some things is, is harder to let go of than others, but that uh, the capacity that we have to, to change our, our view and to change the way we relate to particular conditions, physical conditions, or, you know, and living situations, that's a, a, um, a, a great power that we have. Yes, Sister Tanavichaya. Just a 
quick question, Ajahn. I'm just wondering how was the experience of the Arctic in the tropical cotton robes? <laughs> in in um, in Svalbard. In in Arctic, yeah. In the Arctic, um, we adapted. <laughs> uh, that we had. We did the best we could. We, we couldn't get um, monk-coloured um, down jackets. But I think we uh, we uh, adapted to uh, as best we could. I think the ones that Lumpur and Ajahn Yanarato had were, were black. Uh, I, I had... Uh, um, uh, Ajahn Pasno lent me the one that his father... Uh, his father's old Parker. So if you look at the photographs from that, that, that trip, we're fairly modestly clad. But, um, you know, it's the Arctic, so, so you, it's, it's uh, 72, uh, it's the 72nd parallel, so you're about, about uh, 500, 600 miles from the North Pole, it's pretty chilly. So um, when we were out in the, in the snow, then we had, um, uh, had, we had our robes on, but we had sort of these uh, down jackets over the top and then uh, woolly hats, a couple of layers of woolly hats and mittens and and such like. But if we were just, there's a, a small town, Longyearbyen, which has a population of a thousand, that's the, the, main, the main town of, of Svalbard, then if we were walking th uh, through the town, then we just had our, had our robes on with a, a few jumpers and you know, mittens and a couple of layers of socks and, uh, underneath, and then really good. Uh, I had some Canadian um, snow boots, so, uh, to uh, uh, to be uh, in that environment, then it was really helpful having Ajahn Pasno as the co-abbot at, at Abayagiri because he could clue me in with what you need, what you don't need. Because uh, having grown up in northern Manitoba, he was really well well sussed about uh, Arctic conditions. Um, but it was uh, uh, it, if you had the, a few layers on, then you could sit in the snow, and it was, it was incredibly peaceful. The silence there was absolutely astonishing. There's no ambient sound. If the wind wasn't blowing, there's no ambient sound. There's no planes overhead. There's no birds. There's no trees for the wind to blow through. <laughs> it's, it's incredibly quiet. So the, the, the nada sound was, was uh, exceptionally clear and, and loud there. So it was... And then also because it was May when we were there, and um, it took me a few days to get used to it, but uh, it was light the whole time. So I remember the first day we were out, we, we had gone out on these, these sleds out into the, the wilderness to meditate. And uh, I, I was you know, looking at my watch, and I thought, oh, it's three o'clock, it's going to get dark soon, we should get back. You know, we're, we're far away from, from the town. And, so uh, we had these two guides with us, and I said, to, "You know, it's, it's three o'clock. Um, you know, shouldn't we be getting back?" And he kind of looked at me and said, "Why?" I said, "Well, isn't it going to get dark soon?" And he said, "October." <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. And, and he meant it. it was it was um, like noon here at the moment. It was like midnight there. It was just you know slightly slightly dimmer than than usual, but. Um, yeah, on a on a cloudy day at noon in the winter, that would be about the same as midnight. There. So it just didn't get dark. So yeah, you could take as long as you wanted. You weren't going to get lost in the dark in the snow because there's no dark. So there was a a, a lot of things you you uh, let go of. So Lumpur would say, "What time do you think dawn is?" <laughs> this is what. <laughs> When we gather in the in the hotel dining room for breakfast, that's when we can call that dawn. But uh, yeah, it's no, it doesn't get dark, so there's no, there was no dawn, there was no twilight, there's no nighttime. So the uh, the far north is uh, is a, a, a great area of, of exploration for the Vinaya masters. Up in the uh, above the seventieth parallel, it's, uh, all kinds of things uh, are different there. So, but it, it was uh, it was. Uh, it was a really wonderful environment to meditate in because even when it started snowing, again, you're so wrapped up. You could just be sitting there and the, the snow's coming down and you just turn into a snow monk, you know. <laughs> it's time to get up, you, you walk away because the, the, the warm gear that we had was, was very efficient. And, um, and so that uh, it, was, uh, it was really quite, quite comfortable. And um, the... Uh, 
the the sense of being in a completely different realm was was uh, something I, I hadn't experienced that to quite the same degree. So it was a very very lovely opportunity. I was extremely glad that Lumpur invited me along to that. So not to arouse jealous feelings of I want to go to the Arctic, <laughs> but it it was a a unique and wonderful uh, event. And then uh, and and these guys the the um, the, the 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 people who were our, our guides and who, who sort of drove the snowmobiles to take us out into the wilderness. Uh, at the end of the, the the time, we had a little sort of chat with them, and and they said, "Can you ask us you know, why you wanted to do this?" So we said, "When we we normally have tourists here, they want to go and see polar bears, or they want to go out to the coast and see where the walruses are, or." The, uh, but we've never had a group of tourists who just wanted to go out into the wilderness and sit still for five hours. <laughs> so we, so, uh, and we said, well, we are Buddhist monks, and so this is part of our, our lifestyle. This is, this is uh, uh, what we, we like to do is to, to meditate. And, uh, and then one of them said, you know, well, the first day we went out, I brought a, I brought a, no, a, a novel with me, a, you know, a, a um, uh, a book to keep me entertained, and because I thought I'd be so boring, just just going out to, to uh, into the wilderness and just to sit still for five hours, he said. But I said by the by the third day of doing this, you know, I realised I haven't looked at my book, <laughs> and, and I'm and I'm really enjoying this. So I, I think you've ruined me, uh, which was was quite touching. And then uh, and Lumpur then told him the story of this nimitta that he'd had in Hampstead, and that. Uh, and that this was something that had uh, sort of uh, not that he sort of uh, he was sort of waiting for the day to to happen, but it, it had a profound transformative effect on him, and so that the opportunity to actually be out in the Arctic and in this sort of snowy wilderness, and uh, and we didn't have wolves, but there were polar bears around, that uh, uh, added the sudden. <laughs> uh, Alertness to one's uh, perceptual field, um, and uh, and anyway, Lumpur told that story of uh, of his nimitta and how much it meant to him, and then he said, uh, "You made my dream come true." And then this kind of hard bitten Arctic guide, you could see this little tear coming down. He should actually kind of shed a tear, the, uh, and thought, oh, "Thank you, thank you for telling me that." And uh, yeah, that was nearly 20 years ago, but I'm pretty sure that those guys, they won't have forgotten that. That there would have been a, uh, a kind of a mark in their, in their, their world to, um, to, to feel and to know to be a part of the Arctic in a different way. Yeah. To continue. From the viewpoint of the self, there's a tremendous fear of rejection, ostracism, or being despised in our society. There's a fear of being left alone and unwanted. There's a fear of being old and left to die alone. There's a natural fear of physical danger, of being in situations where our bodies are in danger. And there's the fear of the unknown, the mysterious, ghosts and unseen spirits. So we gravitate to security. Cozy little places with electricity, central heating, insurance and guarantees on everything. Taxes paid and legal contracts, all of these give us a sense of safety. Or we seek emotional security. Say you'll always love me. Say you'll love me even if you don't really mean it. Make everything safe and secure. And in that demand, there's always going to be anxiety because of the grasping at desire. And that was also a common phrase that Lumpur would use. I think it came from a uh, an old Hollywood movie that um, he he had seen and, mem uh, and remembered this uh, particular dialogue, an old black and white movie where one of the, uh, the people in a partnership says, you know, tell me you love me, even if, even if you don't mean it, I don't care, I just want to hear you say it. And so that, that would come up in Lumpur's Dhamma talks quite regularly. Like, tell me you love me, even if you don't mean it, just tell me. Just to give that sense of emotional um, uh, coziness. So monastics are developing a light around the uplifting of the human spirit rather than around material guarantees. As alms mendicants, you take the risk that you might not get anything to eat. You might not have a shelter. You might not have, anything, might not have any really good medicine. 
You might not have anything nice to wear. People are very generous, but as mendicants, we don't take that for granted, assuming that we deserve it. We're grateful for whatever's offered and cultivate the attitude of few wants, few needs. We need to make ourselves ready to be able to leave and relinquish everything at any moment, to have the kind of mind that doesn't think, this is my home, I want it to be guaranteed to me for the rest of my life. No matter how it goes, we adapt. Our needs are few. And so we make adaptations to life, to time and place, rather than making demands. Whatever way it goes is the way it is. Whatever diseases we may catch, or whatever tragedies, catastrophes or successes we experience, from the best to the worst, one can say, this is the way it is. And in that, there is acceptance and non-anger, non-greed, and the ability to cope with life as it's happening. So this also uh, points to uh, the, the standards that we take on when we enter into the, the Sangha, the four supports, the, um, uh, the, at the end of the, um, the Upasampada, the ordination ceremony, and uh, also is there as a standard for the nuns community, um, the, uh, the four supports we, re we reflect upon is uh, uh, robes, uh, arms food, shelter and medicine that we, we deliberately and consciously undertake the lowest standard um, and so that in the, the formal um, uh, exhortation uh, after the, the, the ordination ceremony then uh, as, a, as the preceptor I go through that with uh, the, uh, the candidates uh, and to spell that out that okay this is the standard that you're agreeing to is um, uh, alms food, just whatever food lands in your bowl, whatever food you're offered, that's the, the food to be content with. Uh, to uh, to have robes, uh, clothing made out of, of uh, discarded rags, uh, 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 refuse rag robes, uh, any kind of cloth, any kind of robes, uh, robe material that is available, that's, uh, that's understood to be good enough. Uh, the, just living in a, a, the root of a tree, a basic shelter, to be content with with the most minimal shelter, and then fermented urine as medicine, as a most sort of basic medical uh, treatment possible, that uh, you deliberately undertake the lowest standard of living. You, you make a conscious agreement. This is what I can expect, is this arms food, rag robes, and uh, so on and so forth. And so that anything extra, anything uh, uh, other than that, is taken as a, as a, a bonus or something as a, a pleasant improvement on that. But that's an extremely skillful psychological tool that, uh, that the Buddha established right from the very beginning so that it, uh, again, helps us to be adaptable, that you might, not, uh, you might be happier with the food being offered at one monastery than another monastery, or <laughs> when one person is the head cook at Amravati and another person is the head cook, um, <clears throat> or the particular days when, when people, certain people come to make offerings. Oh, it's Tuesday. Tuesday group, you know that you might have that kind of perception arising in, in the mind. But the standard of just, uh, I've agreed to live on arms food, that's my basic uh, agreement. So whether it's uh, the, the food that I like or the food that I don't like, it's fine. Uh, and that's what is, uh, uh, say, uh, is profoundly liberating. It sets a, a, a standard uh, again, you're planting the seeds for ease and peacefulness so that even though preferences and experiences of discomfort or difficulty might arise, then you're not feeding the complaining mind or the criticizing discontent mind, but rather you're recognizing, well, right now it's like this, it's cold. The first day we went out into the Arctic, it was um, it was only it was May and so it was only zero so I thought well, it's not even below freezing it's, I don't really need to wrap up that much <laughs> eight hours out at at zero and uh, uh, I was kind of shivering from the middle outwards by the time we we, we came back okay two pairs of long johns tomorrow and a <laughs> extra maybe maybe two thermal vests instead of instead of three, instead of one and so but it was. It was cold, you know, just this kind of um, breathing in air at zero degrees for eight hours. The system gets a bit, a bit chilled, and uh, so that you, um, you're feeling like, this is cold, <laughs> this is cold. <laughs> and, uh, the, uh, 
the mind is not complaining or criticizing or getting upset about it. So that's a, 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 a I feel is a, a very very helpful mirror for the, the the mind that says I've got to have this and I can't stand that and I want to have my living living situation this way and it shouldn't be that way. It's a, a profound uh, source of contentment of sen, sen, uh, sentuti, sentutita, contentment. And, uh, and that's a, 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 a cause and a support for, for peacefulness and uh, the heart really being at ease in all situations. We're not here to become anything, get rid of anything, change anything, make anything for ourselves or demand anything, but to awaken more and more to reflect, observe, and to know the Dhamma. Don't worry that things might change for the worse. However they change, we have the wisdom to adapt to them. And I can see that this is the, the real fearlessness of the alms mendicant life. We can adapt. We can learn wisely from all conditions. Because this lifetime is not our real home. This lifetime is a transition we're involved in, a journey through the sensory realm. And there are no nests, no homes, no abiding in this sensory realm. It's all very impermanent, subject to disruption and change in any moment. That is its nature. That's the way it is. There's nothing depressing about that if you no longer make the demand for security in it. The reality of existence is that there isn't any home here. So the homeless life, going forth into mendicancy, is what is called a heavenly messenger because the religious, religious spirit no longer shares the delusions of the worldly mind, which is very determined to have a material home and security. Instead, you have the trust in Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha, and the teaching and the opportunities as mendicants and meditators to develop the insight and understanding to free the mind from the anxieties that come from attachment to the sensory realm as a home. The idea of owning and hanging on to things is the illusion of the worldly life. The view of the self sends forth all these delusions from which we have to protect ourselves all the time. We're always endangered. There's always something to be worried about, something to be frightened of. But when that illusion is punctured with wisdom, there's fearlessness. We see this is a journey, a transition through the sensory realm, and we're willing to learn the lessons it teaches us, no matter what those lessons might be. So there's a, a number of uh, number of aspects to that. Um, I often, um, uh, when, during those ordination ceremonies, the Pabaja and the Upasampada, and uh, also Anagarika precept ceremonies, going into the homeless life, that uh, you're consciously letting go of those material homes. Gara is a, is a home or a house. Anagara is a homeless one. So that uh, there's a conscious letting go of those worldly homes and the, the uh, recognition that the, the jitta is our, our real home, that uh, this, any aspect of the worldly life, uh, Amravati, this temple, <laughs> my kuti, I've been living in this, that kuti for 10 years, but it's not my real home. You know, it's a nice, cozy place with a <laughs> wood-burning stove and uh, uh, I appreciate those cozy aspects uh, of living there. But uh, the, the skillful thing to do in, in reflecting on the four supports is to look at your, your dwelling as a, a roof over the head for one night. And that's it. You know, if you might have lived in the same place for 10 years, 20, 30 years, but if you're, if you're relating to it skillfully, then you're ready to pack up and, and, and go the next day and leave it behind. The um, uh, verse no, number 91 of the Dhammapada uh, is one I like to reflect on in this uh, in this light because it says, uh, "Yeah, the um, the wise exert themselves; they're not attached to any home. Like swans that abandon the lake, they leave home after home behind. The wise exert themselves. So, if you're wise, <laughs> you put energy into your practice; you exert yourself." And you leave home after home behind. So rather than, okay, now I've got a really good place to live. This is, this is, this is what I like. Okay, this is, I've really arrived. This is good. <laughs> that, uh, like swans that abandon the lake, like a swan lives on a particular lake for a period of time and then takes off and, and leaves that lake, goes somewhere else. Then we should be ready to, to leave those, those homes behind. And not just uh, our 
our uh, kind of physical shelters like a kuti, but our psychological homes as well, that uh, the, the things that we like to identify with, our, uh, it can be our, our health, our reputation, our, our friendships, you know, having to be uh, leaving the, the people that we get on with, leaving them behind. There's all kinds of homes that we make of one kind or another, kind of psychological abidings, and uh, we can make a home in our reputation, in our in our seniority, in our in our personal story. Uh, we can we can make a lot of <laughs> a lot of different kind of homes. So the the practice of dhamma, really uh, taking refuge in dhamma, embodying being dhamma, then. That's uh, leaving all of those homes behind, leaving your your seniority, your your name, your family, your story, uh, your reputation. It's not not making any abiding, not making any of those uh, a a home, an identity, and something that the heart depends upon. Any any, uh, as Lumpur puts it here, you know, this lifetime is a transition we're involved in, a journey through the sensory realm. There are no nests, no homes, no abiding. And that that's challenging to the to the ego to the habits of self view that uh, <laughs> there are certain aspects that we like to hang on to our our, uh, our personal story our friendships our physical health our our opinions our um, our reputation or our seniority but uh, it's it's good to be able to to uh, to not be dependent on that I find that I when I uh, <laughs> when I used to travel. <laughs> Other than this mysterious year of uh, of the pandemic, uh, I, I would like to travel on, on aeroplanes or being on the London Underground or the train going from Berkhamsted into Euston, because you're just another blob in a in a carriage. You know, just like there you are sitting in the seat, you know, J seventeen, or you're you're just uh, squished into a, an underground carriage. You're just another another human being. Uh, you, you know, I'm not the abbot of Amaravati. I'm not Ajahn Amaro. I'm just another bloke on the train, another uh, another person on the uh, in the departure lounge. And that uh, in that in that those, in that moment in that kind of situation, that uh, it's good to reflect in that way. Nobody knows your name. You're sitting there in the departure lounge or on a train. They don't know your name. They don't know your story. They don't know your family. They don't have any kind of a sense of, of your background. You don't have to to um, carry that around. Um, and it's a, those are good opportunities to get a uh, perspective on those, those many homes, those many uh, abidings that we create. And uh, some of them are easier to let go of than others. <laughs> If you're in a room in the monks vihara that you don't particularly like, I'm not attached to this home. Can I change? <laughs> but uh, that uh, uh, it might be the, the case that you're quite eager to move into a different room, but letting go of your your personal uh, uh, history, the things that you're proud of, things about your own um, your own mind, your own uh, achievements that you like to to uh, dwell upon or that are really pleasing to you or your qualifications or your interesting uh, history then to, to let go of that to let, let go to not be interested in your own story it's like, oh, <laughs> but it's my story it's, <laughs> that uh, that can be challenging and so uh, the the practice encourages uh, the, the recognition that that uh, t- to really uh, free the heart there needs to be a, a letting go of all of that, the psychological homes as well as the physical homes. And the, um, as Longpore puts it here, the idea of owning, hanging on to things, um, is the illusion of the worldly life. When we, we develop that insight into anatta, then there's a recognition of what, what can be owned and what is, what is there really to do any owning. You can say, well, you know, this is... This is my face mask. Well, <laughs> a year ago, the uh, the concept of me having a face mask didn't exist, and now this is mine. But it'll wear out at a certain point, and it won't be my face mask anymore. Or this is my bookmark. You know that this uh, uh, came from, uh, I think, a trip to Oxford. Somebody bought me some bookmarks, and so this is now my bookmark. But before too long, it'll go its own way, and it won't be mine anymore. But then, if we look, well, if we say that's mine. But what is there here that can really own anything, even this body or this mind? 
say this is my mind or my thoughts, my memories, what, what does the owning uh, organ or agent look like that you can't find an, an owner or uh, no thing can really be owned? And that's a, a very important insight. When the Buddha was describing Nibbana as the, uh, the island in the, in the Sutta Nipata, when the Buddha's talking about the image of Nibbana as the island, the island that you cannot go beyond, he, he uses the words uh, anadhanang uh, and akinchanang. The Nibbana is a place of non-possession, uh, of non-owning, anadhanang. Uh, Akinchanang uh, is a place of no thingness, so that peacefulness is is about uh, not owning, letting go of that that uh, the mental structure where there can be an owner. <laughs> the thing, things are still experienced. The flow of perceptions and feelings and and emotions and moods and attitudes they're experienced. That they're, they're known by the the quality of awareness, but. They're not owned. They don't belong. They're not. They're not possessed. It's anadhanang. The all of the field of experience is is uh, not ownable, and that challenges the the habits of self view. <laughs> so that the ego goes, oh, don't take, don't take that away from me as well. But the at least there's that, that kind of a reflex of uh, self centered thinking. But then at the same moment, that, along with that bitterness, there's a sweetness of, of relief, of the jitta recognizing, well, of course, <laughs> how, how could there be anything to be owned and, and what is there to own it? Who, who is there to own anything, really? And there's a peacefulness, a relief, and an ease in that. So I'll close there for...